We're happy to be back, bringing you another episode of Millennium Live, where we sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. Maybe we should start by sort of brainstorming on who are the insider threats? What are the different types of insider threats that we might need to be concerned about? And what businesses would these people be going after? Anybody want to jump in and uh, start that conversation? I'll, I'll go in because I see myself as next to you in the box now. So I'll go <laughs> um, So as, as you think through an insider, and, and there's a lot of different no, the definitions that we use for an insider, but the insider threat is really a, a, a malicious actor inside of the organization that either due to being disgruntled about something that happened in the organization or having concerns about a particular use case wants to harm the reputation of the brand, harm the reputation of the organization. Um, and using a number of different mechanisms, one of the areas where insiders typically do is leveraging intelligence from the inside of the organization to share externally for financial gain or what have you. Uh, the insider could also be one that is in the process of leaving an organization and wants to capture intellectual cap capital of the organization to take to a competing firm or competing organization. And final, ca final category of an insider is also a, a, a innocent insider that has been taken over by an attacker and operating unknowingly on behalf of a, of a threat actor within the organization for the purpose of also data exfil. Um, I mean, the, the typical motivation or the driver of, a, of an insider is really focused on either harming the brand or intellectual capital loss. All right. So, Ben, do any of those uh, types of threat actors apply to a commercial business like Aflac, or do you have different types of threat actors that you would call insiders or the same? Uh, yeah, we definitely have. Uh, that that was a good rundown of several categories of them. There's um, there's a couple that we particularly focus on. Uh, one is um, you know the the financial gain motivation. Uh, someone who is an insider who's looking to exploit the business practices of the organization, uh, either through um, some sort of compensation or benefit fraud, or through um, uh, you know, exploiting our policyholders and customers' information to some extent to try to, you know, gain income for themselves. Uh, another one that we're recently uh, drawing much more focus on, which has become um, a, a much more prominent threat recently, is the idea of the, uh, what the black market calls the any, which is just an insider, right? But like, if you go on, you know, the, the black market, you can buy credit card numbers, you can buy passwords, uh, you can buy things like that. And that's all... Um, you know, not as valuable as it used to be, but one of the things that is for sale on the black market is what's known as an any, which means you have access to someone who's inside a particular company and has, through some mechanism, made themselves known as willing to work with criminals for whatever ends. Now, that may be because someone's blackmailing or extorting them. It may be because someone's paying them. It may be because they're disgruntled. It could be any number of reasons why, but somehow they've gotten they've made themselves known as available as an insider at a particular company and their services are for sale. Maybe not by themselves, maybe by some intermediary who's offering their services for sale, the person who's blackmailing them, for, for instance. 
And uh, the intent there uh, by criminal organizations could be any number of things. It may not necessarily be to steal from our policyholders or to steal from us as a corporate entity. It may be to commit a crime against some other organization just leveraging our name or leveraging access to our systems. So it's really uh, taking a, a threat management perspective against that, the same way that we're constantly on the lookout for you know, what groups are trying to attack us, uh, you know, where do we have our passwords up for sale, where do we have, um, you know, access to our policyholder information for sale in the black market, we also need to be on the lookout for where might we have insiders in our organization who have made themselves known that their services are for sale. Very cool. So, Susan, how do you define or characterize or catalog threat actors? You're looking at, you're looking across a very broad range of businesses, right, that you're, or organizations that you're trying to support, how do you, uh, do you put them into a few buckets? Do you put them into buckets for different kinds of businesses? What, how do you catalog threat actors in this area? Right, thank you so much. Um, so we look at insiders as any person who has had or who has authorized access or knows about an organization's key resources, and that can be across the board from critical infrastructure um, owners and operators to soft targets, houses of worship, schools, everything like that. Um, so there are people who have um, information about key resources and information. Uh, they can have access to their, um, their personnel, finances, facilities, information, equipment, networks, and systems. An insider is someone that the organization trusts. It's someone that you come in contact with every single day. It could be... Um, anyone from staff to regular continuous physical, um, that they have physical and virtual access to any of your organization. It could be a full-time employee, seasonal help, security contractors. And so we really look at the holistic approach of an insider and how they're going to express insider threat. We bucket those into violence, espionage, sabotage, theft, and cyber. And all of those things can be, aside from violence, intentional or unintentional. Everything from piggybacking um, through a security system to clicking on a phishing attempt. And so that's how we define the threat expressions. That's good. So that's a very broad definition. So given that, which I think is good, it does kind of capture everybody. Um, could the panelists address what's, what's specific security controls can you think about implementing? I mean, obviously we can all do the cybersecurity framework, we can do NIST 853, we can do all the uh, 27,001, we can do all the good stuff that we're trained to do. Are there specific controls that will help defend against the type of broad range of insiders that Susan just defined or do we need completely new controls to address this problem? So there are nascent capabilities that are rebuilt into our controls. And those, those capabilities are part of the practice of how do you identify and model behavior of an, act, of, an, of an actor. Now, there's one keyword I just used in that explanation that says behavior. There is, the, there is what is normal that a person does. So if you look at the typical behavior of how a person works, how they compute, when they work, when they badge in, when they log in, all those things kind of models the typical behavior that should be profiled over a period of time. And if you think through, uh, if you think through all the different indicators or data sources that you would leverage to be able to model that, that really goes down to your badge swipes, your authentication logs, 
the information that you get around data. Uh, around all the data that basically paint the pattern of a typical person's behavior. So uh, what, what's nominal to be able to understand when a behavior changes is really looking at when those behaviors start to change. Mm -hmm. In times alter, authentication time changes. Due to COVID right now, we're not going into an office. So that is not, that is not a behavior change. That is a behavior change for the enterprise. So that will not trigger. But however, if you're logging in, if the actor or this particular insider is lo normally logs in at 7.30 a.m., Eastern time on a typical day. And now you find this actor logging in at 2 a.m., 4.30 a.m. and starting to do things that are outside of their normal accesses or trying to prod, prod and prod, uh, prod into locations they don't normally log into or try to get access to data that they normally do. Those indicators will bubble up as alternative or malicious indicators that paints the, the, the traction of normal bad behavior. Um, you could start as simply as leveraging the, the aggregation of those data sources I described, authentication logs, uh, login experience logs, all those things and getting them into a sim and creating query rules that helps you understand the difference between those thresholds and being able to set those indicators differently. There's a lot of technology. Oh, sorry, Fred, go ahead. Well, I have two, so that's really good. I have two follow-up questions around that. Are those controls that you're talking about looking at behavior and you know behavior out of the norm are those part of the existing security standards that you use number one and then number two if you have some type of security operations center that's looking at that stuff are those people trained to look at what you're just talking about or does it do we need to do go beyond what's being done now in most cases so fantastic question in most in most cases those logs are not being captured there are things that are being generated, but we don't have, we, we, we do take pay attention to authentication logs. That's part of the things you use to understand normal behavior. We pay attention to those, but bad swipes from a physical access perspective, some organizations don't collect those or they collect it in a different repository outside of the cybersecurity log because it's meant from a facility perspective. And in some organizations or some locales, you actually can't collect that because it's a violation of a person's uh, privacy or violations of the GPDR rule because now you're monitoring. Workers' counsel could basically raise a red flag for that person because now you're checking on that person's behavior and monitoring performance. So those are the kind of the blockers that happens there. But just telling it back to the point, all those logs are there. Most organizations can leverage their existing security operations teams to collect that data, those data sources into their SIMs. Um, but it's not in the capability that's built into that. So the industry has seen this and there are new controls that have been built out to allow you to be able to pick up those. And there's technology and controls that are built in to be able to hone in on these use cases across all of our different vendors to help solve for that. Good. Here's a, a you guys all saw this, a good question do or from, from the audience. Do organizations separate <clears throat> insider threat personnel from traditional cybersecurity investigative elements, maybe that means is there a separate group looking at insider threats? Also, does anybody implement, uh, I think what you were talking about, Tundi, sentiment analysis or other insider threat technology to comb through chat and email, looking sort of proactively for alerting activity? And if so, has that worked? And does anybody want to address, uh, there's multiple questions there, anybody want to address uh, that comment? 
Yeah, I think that's a good, um, that's a very good question and a good segue in, into something I wanted to follow on from the previous question, which is, um, you know, the, the behavior analytics that Tunde was discussing, that's, that's very central to, to Insider Threat Program. But I also want to stress that Insider Threat is, when you develop a program for it, it's something that you really have to work with human resources and legal and your physical security team because, uh, you know, you are talking about dealing with sensitive issues with your own staff. And uh, just as a illustration, uh, when I first presented our insider threat program to our board of directors, which they didn't get into detail in it, but I gave a brief uh, discussion of it. The very first and only question I got from the board was concern over whether this program could be used unintentionally or intentionally to unfairly target certain groups or certain people within the organization and whether or not it might have unbalanced effects on the, you know, the employee population. So you really have to, and, and luckily I had already thought through that and we had worked directly with HR and legal on crafting the program. So we had, we had thought a lot about that and put a lot into that, but you really need to make sure just like, you know, like with, with many things in your organization, you need to make sure that when you're dealing with your employee base, you're dealing with them consistently and fairly. Uh, and that, you know, you're protecting your employees and your company uh, from any misunderstandings about how you're going about this and what you may or may not do. And behavior analytics is a good uh, avenue and a good way to approach it because you're talking about behavior, not about individuals necessarily. Um, as for sentiment analysis, we've looked into some of that. Um, that definitely gets risky when you consider what I just said. When you start, how you know, how do you classify sentiment if someone's a member of certain political groups, is that sentiment or is that me unfairly targeting them? Uh, so we are aware of some of those things, but um, we, we've been a little bit shy to go that far into our behavior analytics. Very good. So Susan, you look at a lot of different organizations outside of the government, right? You probably have an interface with more people. What, what do you see uh, companies doing or organizations doing? Are they more concerned about this than in the past and what what kinds of steps are are people taking actually i want to go around the whole room and ask everybody for their top three steps that they should take to combat insider threats some have been mentioned but you know you can do technology people process partners at least three takeaways uh from each of you for the for the audience so i'll start with you susan not to put you on the spot okay. I'll, I'll address uh, many of the other questions that were, were happening. Um, sure. So companies create an insider threat mitigation program to um, identify, assess, and manage insider threat incidents. And so what this does, it provides uh, a holistic approach, as I was saying previously, but it allows all of the entities to come together to look at an incident. The question was, do you separate insider threat personnel from tra traditional cyber and security investigative elements and it really just depends on how the reporting happens. If it's a person who reports um, some kind of activity or concerning behaviors that a person is, is exhibiting, uh, they will go through the insider threat mitigation program and go through an assessment with the group that is very trusted, vetted, um, knows their stuff from HR, from legal, from CRCL, um, civil liberties and civil rights. Um, and so then you have those cases, but then you can also have cases that stem from these, the user activity monitoring from 
the, the strange anomalies of, of cybersecurity that are being flagged. And that's when you would start your assessment as well into an insider threat because you then start looking at the behaviors of the individual, what circumstances are going on, what are the environmental factors that could be um, uh, impacting this person to possibly go down the pathway of an insider threat. And so it's really important. And you had mentioned that, you know, how do you, um, or maybe it was Ben about how do you combat the, the people who are falsely reporting, but that's why you have the insider threat mitigation program to look at it, to ensure that you're running down all of the leads, you're talking to coworkers and supervisors because you will get fraudulent claims. Um, that's just the nature of the game with any investigation. Um, but it's important to show the workforce that you're, you take it seriously and, and continue from there. So the takeaways are to create an insider threat mitigation program, have senior leadership or the senior organization, the managerial um, part of the organization really accept and embrace the insider threat mitigation program. And then you would want to create your multi-disciplinary um, team. So those are like the, the starting point. Um, some really good resources are to go to Carnegie Mellon, the, secure, um, the Software Engineering Institute. They have a lot on insider threat as well as the National Insider Threat Task Force. Uh, do you wanna make a mention of work that your group's doing or? Sure, um, we are completing an insider threat mitigation guide and that is in order to have the private sector um, either start a program or enhance their existing insider threat program. Um, it goes through the framework of defining insider threat, defining what your assets are, your, your critical key assets in order to protect those assets, and then you identify, assess, and manage an insider threat. And where can people find your work when it is published? Will it be on a government website somewhere? Or? It is. It's on um, cisa.gov, cisa.gov. We have an insider threat mitigation website already on there. Um, you can go to cisa.gov slash hometown security. And that is where you can find anything from active shooter preparedness, insider threat, vehicle ramming mitigation, um, safe schools, houses of worship protection, to go on a tangent. Right. Now, somebody also, one of our uh, uh, listeners also is asking, just to follow up on what controls you can use for insider threat, somebody was asking about DLP, data loss prevention. Is DL, what do other panelists think about, is DLP effective? Some people say it has too much overhead, it doesn't work. What, have any, has anybody implemented it and uh, what have the experiences been? So it, it's, it's definitely layered that I love a lot. Um, it is a definite data point to leverage because if you think about it, one of the key conversations is tracing and tracking data lifecycle. So one of the topics that we kind of honed in yesterday on is just the, the, the protection of data. We have a brand in, in our firm really, which is really respect data. So, I mean, as, as you respect data and manage the safety nuts from creation to deletion of data and having a capability, capability layer from a data, data-centric architecture principles of understanding data throughout that life cycle, you're able to follow data. The movement of data paints as a clear indicator because you're able to know how you normally use a data set. And if you're changing the behavior of how you're using a data set, that would be a bubble up indicator. So DLP definitely is a key, key control that would help fade into a data insider threat program. Okay. 
And another person here was asking about join and leave process. Um, how do people handle that? Because you read about a lot of breaches where somebody's terminated from the company, but they hang around for a little while. Do you guys feel some, once somebody leaves the company, they should be escorted out and all access removed? Or how do you handle that in the real world? So, go ahead, Ben. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I think that's very important for a number of things. Uh, it's a big part of our security program to have good uh, identity and access management controls. And uh, we have, um, you know, we made it a, a very strong requirement from a policy standpoint that our access controls be automatically tied to the HR system. So that, uh, and if you think about it, in theory, that's how it should work, right? If, if, if HR says this person doesn't work here anymore, there shouldn't be a lot of intermediary people then going and making decisions about whether or not they should have access. Automatically, they, as soon as they are no longer employed, all access is revoked. Um, and that's just systems talking to each other and, and, and there's not people involved in that process. And, th and that's important. Uh, it's an, it gives HR peace of mind for when they're scheduling things with what they may consider to be a high risk termination. Uh, and it's also part of our insider threat program, right? Um, I will say in addition to that, one, one of my takeaways from this, and I believe Susan already mentioned this as well, is that there are definitely um, tiers of risk that you wanna look at. So in general, most of our behavior analysis that's going on internally is not going on full-blown aggressive against all employees at all time, right? It's it, the, most of it is looking at people who have either recently had disciplinary action for something, have turned in their two week notice, uh, have had unexpected leave, things like that. There are certain things that pe people put people in higher categories, which then trigger most of the analysis. We're not really watching every keystroke of every employee all day long. Uh, we are looking for some uh, anomalies there, but it's really against those higher risk categories that you identify. Can I ask about that? So let's say, Ben, somebody does put in their two-week notice. Who is the person in the company who's actually going to be monitoring their behavior and what they're doing? Because so, it, can't, it can't be the security department. Who would it be? Right. So it, at that point, it's still it's automated as much as possible, and that's by design so that it's consistent. So, you know, the, the, the number one thing we don't want to do um, and, and won't do is a manager call us up and say, you know, I really don't like that guy. Can you turn, can you turn up the monitoring on him? Like, that's just, that's not a, a capability at all. But we will move people into, um, and you'd be surprised how many managers want us to do that, right? I mean, that's a, that's a frequent request, but we're not going to do that. Um, but uh, what will happen is automatically when certain things are identified, like disciplinary action or, or two-week notice, things like that in the HR system, that automatically adds more use cases of behavior analysis that are done on that employee, looking for you know large file transfers, looking for abnormal login times, things like that. Those things are heightened and can actually become security operations tickets as opposed to you know possibly flying under the radar at other times. Yeah, that's very good. So it sounds like that's a good area where artificial intelligence could help rather than just you can't have people looking over everybody's shoulder. But another person here was asking about uh, kind of least privilege. So if everybody had access to just what they needed, that could very well reduce uh, uh, insider theft, right? Do you, do you guys agree? And it has is, are there ways of, because usually what happens is people get too much access if they've been with the company for a number of years. Is, has anybody found tools or processes or procedures to really keep people's access to what they really need? 
hate, hate to be the buzzword bingo guy. <laughs> the reality is IAM, as Ben alluded to earlier, is exactly that crystal part of the program. Um, if you think about an insider threat program, it's just an, it's an enhancement to things that you've done from a practice perspective. You alluded to that thread earlier, people process technology. From a process perspective, the life cycle of a person's management of credentials, really taking that zero trust principle into mind is really, really important. So at the point when you no longer, again, going back to our brand, respect data, as a, at the point that you no longer have a need to know particular data, you should no longer have access to it. So it should be a core practice from an IEM perspective. I mean, the world has moved from just traditional, I need access, grant me access, to really challenging the conversation of saying, do you need access to this database in your current role? I mean, that has changed and you should not have access to that data. So it's very, very important that that line between IAM access management, where you robust controls around what you have access to and the flow into insider threat being strong. Because the laxer controls you have from an IEM perspective, the more gaps and the ability to have benign behavior indicators that you're going to monitor from um, from from, from uh, inside a threat perspective. Yeah, uh, another person was asking a related question: Is what about SaaS applications? You know, people may have access to dozens of these outside of the company's firewall and data center. Has anybody found any? good tools to uh, eliminate SaaS application access when somebody leaves? So there's a core control we tend to ignore for most of the fact, for most of the fire, which is really how we, I call it driving less friction for the customer, which is really single sign-on, but it's such a powerful control to make sure that you're able to really eliminate controls to SaaS applications once it's, got, once it's gone. So as you identify those SaaS applications that have either been stood up by the business, in partnership with them, really work with them to say, we can enable better user experience from a single sign-on perspective to allow that good, sit very, very well-managed, robust access to the technology. Uh, but the key conversation there is as you start as you start that journey, it allows you to be able to uh, get there. And yes, a lot is completely correct. The, the most app, not all SaaS applications are equal. Some are not down that road from, from an SSO perspective. But the good thing about the other conversation is, even though it doesn't support it, there's form-based capabilities depending on who you partner with to drive your SSO capabilities that can model the element of SSO or at least granting controls to those applications. So at least you get a layer of control around that. So when you do terminate access, you're able to remove. I see. So by, by using the SSO process, you can eliminate access to a lot of these SaaS applications when the person leaves, right? Not have a lot of orphan applications out there. That is correct. Because we made SSO a policy for that very reason. So SSO is required at our organization for all applications. And we have a few exceptions, but not many. It's required for that reason. Great. Let me go back to Susan. Susan mentioned that you should have a, an overall plan for insider threat mitigation, if I remember right. And it would have to be approved by the executives and things like that. So what thoughts do you have on how do you get such a plan funded? You know, do you have to go to executives and say, you can't really go and say all our employees are stealing all our stuff. You know, we need to, it looks bad, right? To set up locks on everything. How do you get a program like that funded if you haven't had a lot of insiders or what, what are your thoughts on getting financial support for that? You know, 
you really build upon what you already have in place. So if you have um, information technology uh, use agreements where you lay out specifically what you can and what you cannot do, um, that really helps establish an insider threat mitigation program because you let the employee know, you let the entire workforce know what is and what is not acceptable. Um, you know, we work with very small organizations to very large organizations. So it's, it's really the, um, the paperwork involved with letting your employees know what is acceptable, what is not. And then you couple that with behavioral indicators and knowing your, your people. It's kind of hard right now on telework to know exactly what's going on in everyone's life. But if there are uh, indicators of, you know, potential grievances and ideation that someone's very, very upset and you may need to flag that in order not to get them in trouble, but to get them the, the help they need and maybe direct them to employee um, assistance programs or some kind of, um, not even counseling, but just some kind of assistance to determine where this person may end up. And we talked about when you terminate an employee, um, sometimes it's advisable, and I, I can't really say that, but it is suggested to maybe extend to them some employee assistance program. If you have an employee that is um, very grieved and on that pathway to potential violence or insider threat, instead of uh, terminating them and sending them on their way to go along further, the ideation, the, uh, the moving on with their plan, and then coming back to potentially have an active shooter event or some other violence, maybe it is a, a good idea to extend them insurance, extend them EAP, employee assistance programs, or provide some kind of help to them so that you mitigate that risk a little bit. Um, people are going to go on um, on their path that they choose, but it's also um, while you terminate the access to electronic means, if you have someone that is potentially um, threatening, you may want to tell your security staff that this person has been terminated. If you see them coming back, you may want to call additional security. Do not let them in. They've been terminated. They have no more access. So there's been some active shooter incidents where an individual will come back after being terminated and and unfortunately causing violence on your workplace. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Build on kind of the policies you already have for getting your program going. And then I think you do have to treat people as people. You have to treat them on an individual basis to minimize risk. But that leads me into another question. You know, given the high stress situation that we're in now, people working from home, we've got a pandemic, there are layoffs. What Has anybody seen any... Uh, or what are your thoughts on uh, more insider threats or incidents in the next year, let's say? Is this, is this something that you would move on a higher on your radar, radar screen of overall threats for your organization? I think it stays pretty front and center from the perspective of exactly what you just described, where and, and, and there's a compendium of different things. If, if there's a failure in any of the controls we've all talked about, you know, roll off lever program, joiner lever program, identity access failures, excessive permissions here and there, all those different things. If there's a failure in those programs in this current mode of work, it could 
open a, it can open an organization to those opportunities. Um, but the reality is, uh, I think there's a level of heightened awareness that we need to leverage. Uh, with, with with that, with again, uh, giving a shout out again for the latest session that will happen around just making that a cultural thing. So it comes from being empathetic leaders where we have been, we carry a lot of empathy for our people, but carrying the, mo the mode to the entire organization that they are that level of awareness. They are monitoring control because they as people are the ones that can actually see those things here. Yes, it will give some false starts, but there's a lot of value in make, enabling your, 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 your organization's culture to basically message things over to you in this new work environment. Extreme behaviors are detected. Because again, as we said, it's a, it's, a, it's a behavior thing, it's a people thing. So we just have to be very, very watchful. We have to carry a lot of empathy with the people that we work with, because um, a lot of people don't deal with this mode of work very, very well. So it's just, we just have to be very, 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 very deliberate about that as, as leaders and as, as technologists and as cyber people. Right, will we need more technical controls around this give because you mentioned people a couple of times and now people aren't even you don't see people that much anymore right so you are we going to need more of these technical behavioral baselining controls than we had before anybody i so far i haven't seen i mean obviously the connectivity and collaboration requirements when we're all working remote like this have, you know, have, have gone through the roof. Uh, and that, that's, that affects everything. But, you know, I've been managing uh, geographically and, and work from home groups for, you know, 15 years or more. Uh, and there is an adjustment period, but I've never really seen that there's any, in, from, the, from the personal perspective, right, from the individual, I've never really seen that there's any increased risk um, that does vary from global region to global region. Some of our global regions, they see insider threat much more as a physical security issue and then and and therefore tend to see the remote work as a, as a bigger problem to solve from an insider threat perspective. But generally speaking, I mean, I, th I think there's just a, a cultural adjustment that has to happen. Uh, employees have to, you know, recognize that, look, you know, you, you don't need to be seen all the time. You don't need to be in a meeting all the time to prove that you're working. Uh, management has to get used to the fact that, you know, just because someone didn't respond to your IM right away, it doesn't mean they're at the casino drinking. Maybe it just means they went to the bathroom for a minute. It's okay. If they didn't respond, they're probably still working. Um, and also just understanding that just because they're at home doesn't mean they suddenly turn into a criminal, right? They're not, they're not going to suddenly decide I'm going to steal data just because they're working from a home office uh, instead of in the physical office. And, and generally, you know, other than like I said, the technological changes that come with having people working remotely in general, like VPN technology and cloud technology, there hasn't really been a, an in increased risk or an increased need for monitoring those individuals or worrying about those individuals uh, as you know being an insider threat. Okay, yeah, that's good. So we've all been dealing with remote employees for years, right? So it's not like a totally new, something completely new, so. Interesting. The only thing I want to add is just being very, very deliberate about recent regulation is starting to be, is starting to move the U.S. in general to a more, a more discipline around people elements. So as more regulation comes in, CCPA is there, um, we're starting to resemble a lot of our, 
uh, European peers uh, as far as when it comes to people data, what do we collect, what do we manage, the ability to be able to drive and manage. Um, uh, so GPDR is a very big one, but CCPA is strongly following behind and there's a lot more coming. So we have to make sure that we are staying close to regulation, staying close with our legal teams, our compliance teams, as these things start to change. Because the things on what you can collect, what you can pay attention to is changing daily, especially for US-based organizations. So what you could do before, you might not be able to do tomorrow. So it's very, very important that you're able to continue to follow through on the compliance with James for things you're allowed to do, data points you're allowed to collect, the aggregation you're making about people and what they're doing from a normal behavior perspective. Yeah, here's a very good question. I was going to bring up somebody reminded me, but it's the question of KPIs, security metrics. Security is all about measurement, showing the board of directors what you're doing. What have you all found to be effective to measure the success of your insider threat program? And how do you present that to your board of directors or management? Let's throw out an easy question. Just want to interrupt. I'm sorry for a minute. We just have about three minutes remaining. So I just wanted to let you know. All right. Three minutes. That would be good for this question. Well, I use dollars a lot when it comes into play, right? So it's, it's easy to show internal fraud uh, stuff, you know, as we formalize more of an insider threat program, the fraud department starts to see, you know, uh, more exposure uh, prevented and fewer dollars lost. Um, so that's always an easy one. It doesn't take a lot of technical explanation when you're talking to the board. Okay. Tundi? Um, other than the dollar, dollars one is definitely a very, very big, 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 big metric to use, but also uh, if you kind of watch how the culture changes as well, because nothing sells that people understanding they're being monitored. So think about for those of us that have worked and consulted with the federal government before with a big bold banner that you are being monitored. Once that conversation starts to say that we're watching bad swipes, there is a, there's a change to how people start to use technology. So indication on exactly the incident trends a lot of you are amazing. Um, the incident trends that, are, that starts to change on just those indications, uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic for, for an organization. So showing those INTP type incidents and how the call changes, how there's reduction just from that. I mean, the key conversation starts with that awareness. Again, it goes back to culture. Well, people know we all be monitored. We have people that are human firewalls paying attention as well. The numbers, the type of incidents that occur will start to reduce very, very well, I guess we only have a couple minutes. Uh, besides Susan's um, up website, are there other reference sites? That, there's the Carnegie Mellon work. Are there other reference sites or articles that people could recommend for listeners to go to to learn more about this? Yes, so there's the, sorry, Tunde, um, there's a National Insider Threat Task Force that is more towards government entities, but you can really grab some key information to add to your insider threat mitigation program. There's also the Carnegie Mellon um, Software Engineering Institute. They're fantastic. Um, we work with them a lot. There's the Secret Service. They also have reports that come out every year on insider threat. And um, for the previous question, uh, as Tunde mentioned, creating a culture of shared responsibility and connection and respect, having those anonymous and confidential reporting avenues and uh, really engaging with your workforce to report any kind of 
insider incidents, behavioral indicators, and then training your employees, training your whole organization. That's a really good metric to show how you are improving your insider threat posture and awareness. Excellent. Very good. Any other, sounds like we have about 30 seconds left. Any other final thoughts from anybody, Katie, or are we pretty much out of time? We're just about out of time, but if anyone has any final thoughts, you can wrap it up. I just want to add with what, like what I started with, uh, keep in mind, it's not just about watching internally. It's also about watching externally. Look out at the threat landscape and see if there's people who have identified insiders in your organization as possibly acting against you. Very good. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for being on this panel. This was a great conversation. I'm sorry I have to cut it short. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes exclusively on Digital Diary.